1 Samuel chapter 12. And let's read uh, just a little bit of this, starting in verse number... Boy, my eyes are getting bad. 19. Got to get a big, letter, big word Bible like you got, Derek. Verse number 19, we'll read it to the end of the chapter. This is verse number 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. There's a phrase that we don't like to hear other people tell us. That's not right. That's not right. When someone uses that phrase and says it to us, what they're implying is there is something amiss in us. Either we've done something or said something wrong, or we've made an error or a mistake of some kind that needs correction. We don't like that. We don't like that when people say that's not right. Just some examples. It was Max's birthday this week, and he's opening a gift. Hey, guess what it is? I think it's this. Anybody opening a present? I think it's this. That ain't right. Wrong. You're answering, you ever watch Jeopardy and Alex? He, always, he had all these different ways to say, that's a dumb answer. <laughs> no, that's wrong, incorrect, sorry, you're not right. Someone at our table makes a mean statement about somebody else. Oh, did you see what so-and-so was wearing or what they said? And you say, hey, that's not right. That's not right, you saying that or doing that. I think one of the big things for me is I, I wear these flannel, shirt, flannel coats in the winter. And uh, when, I, when I'm out cutting wood or walking through the, walking outside or whatnot, I've got three or four of them. And I always button them wrong. You know, these button-up flannels, and they're always like this. And we were watching an old video of me when I was in high school, and I was wearing a flannel, and it was like this. And Leah says, you've been doing that all your, and it just for some reason, I always do it like this. And say, hey, that's not right. In each of these cases, whether it's a gift or a wrong answer or a, a mean thing that's said or this, right? It'd be, I could just bother everybody today by doing this. Everybody would like, it would just bug you the whole service. When, when someone says that's not right, they're implying that there is a standard, I know this really isn't a word, a standard of rightness that you have missed, right? Now, no amount of arguing is going to change that standard. It's like, it's like with the flannel. Hey. 
what's the matter? I mean, I could say I don't care. I could say, hey, I like it this way, but I am not going to change the standard that this is the right way to do it. Or the same thing with an answer. You know, when was the Civil War, 1861 to 1865? Nothing is going to change that standard of truth or rightness. The only solution is to make an adjustment so that we line up with the standard of rightness. Okay? So this morning, you're here on a special day because we're starting a new study. What we do in our morning services is we just walk through a book of the Bible. In the last 11 years, we've done eight or nine different books. We just finished the Gospel of Luke. And so we come today to a brand new study in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Now these books have stories in them that have captivated children for forever. And, and there are stories that you remember. In fact, mom's going downstairs right now to teach children. I'm sure she's not teaching this. But there are stories uh, that have just been so compelling whether it is Samuel in the middle of the night hearing a voice from God and running into Eli's bedroom and saying, why did you call me? This is always a funny story to children, right? And then he goes back and hears the voice again and says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Of course, David and Goliath is one of the greatest Bible stories there is as far as memorable and well-known, even, even to people who don't know their Bibles very well. David's sin with Bathsheba, or Saul calling on a witch from the dead and Samuel appearing. Mephibosheth being carried and dropped and being a cripple. we got all these wonderful stories in there that we're going to walk through and see God's purpose in them. But before we do that, we want to give a little bit of context and some more discussion on this idea of rightness. I want to kind of begin with this. We're not really going to get to the book of 1 Samuel until next week. I, you have your Bibles open, and one of the words that we want to look at is the word right in verse number, again, my, my numbers here are small, verse number 23, where Samuel is instructing the people. And Samuel is about to move off the scene. Saul has been anointed king. We'll get to all of this. But the people are grieved because they recognize they have sinned, and even in the asking for a king, they have sinned. I'll explain in just a second. Sabbath says, not to worry, I'm going to pray for you, and God will not reject you if you continue to serve him faithfully. Remember all that he has done for you. Let this be the motivation for your walking in the right way. See that word in verse number 23? I am not going to sin, Samuel says. I will instruct you in the good and right way. That's a very interesting word in the Hebrew. It's, word, it's translated many different ways in our Bibles, upright, righteous, and even the word straight. It can refer to a road or a path that is straight. Basically, it means being level. Like it, it, It's used several times in the Bible of people walking on a level road or a level path, a straightness of a path without, without bumps or inclines. Ezekiel uses the word uh, to describe a creature's legs being straight. But most often, it's not referring to something physical. The word is used in an ethical or emotional sense to talk about something that is right or agreeable or pleasing to someone. It's, it's used really in the same way that I was using it. Correct, just, right. The Bible sometimes refers to people 
as being upright. It says God hears the prayers of those who are upright in heart. And just like with the buttons or the Jeopardy answers or the mean statements we make, when we say someone is upright, there must be a standard of ultimate rightness. And we know that God is that righteous standard. Let me start by just kind of introducing this main point and then three kind of, uh, not tentacles, but, but paths that lead away from this. Let's start with this main thought here. God's character can be defined as being right. In God's very being, he is right. Okay? Psalm 25, and let's just pile on some scriptures here. We won't turn to all of them. You could jot them down as you're taking notes. There's a place in your program to do that. Psalm 25, verse 8 says, good and upright is the Lord. He, he is the ultimate standard of this rightness. Psalm 92, verse 15 says, the Lord is upright. And just in case you missed that, it says the Lord is upright and there is no unrighteousness in him. I guess when we think about that, when we think about buttoning a coat wrong or getting an answer wrong or saying something that doesn't align to a standard, that has never occurred with God. There has never been a reason for someone or something to come to him and have God adjust his character to some other standard. He is that ultimate standard. Any man in here who does construction understands that with a level, that is the standard. You don't adjust the level to, to make the beam straight or plumb or however. I don't do a lot of construction, and when I do, I usually get hammers thrown at me in my face. But the, the idea is you, don't, you use that as the standard. You don't adjust the beam. You understand what I'm saying. And that is the way it is with God. No one has ever needed to come to say, God, you need to make an adjustment in this area. Reminds us of Luke chapter 18, which we've just come through that study, when the rich young ruler comes to Christ and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's wonderful because at that moment, Jesus should have just said, repeat after me, dear Lord, I know I'm, he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, why do you call me good? Help me with it. There is none good but God. He says that. We could, we could say there's none right but God, there's none, there is no standard of goodness except God. He's trying to get the rich young ruler to recognize that he does not meet that ultimate standard. That's what Romans 3 teaches us, that there is no one who is right, no one who is righteous like him. God in his being, in his character, is upright. Listen to this verse from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 5. And in this verse... We have a comparison between the righteous God and unrighteous mankind. Listen. The Lord is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust know no shame. That's a verse in Zephaniah that we probably don't refer to very often, but what a powerful statement. With the Lord, every dawn that comes, he continues to show himself just and right. No need for correction. But mankind is unjust and knows no shame. Their, their wickedness, our wickedness, knows no limit or bounds. In other words, 
God is this right standard and all of us have missed it and are failing miserably. In the New Testament, the same word righteous is now in Greek, of course, but it has that same quality of being right or just, and it's the attribute that describes God as being holy. So that is, that is kind of the main thought here as we begin, that God in his being and character is right. And then there are some tentacles, that's the only way I can, you know, some, some sub-thoughts under that. If God is right in his being and character, then it makes sense that these other three things are true too. So follow along with me. I hope you're tracking with this. If God is right, then secondly, his word must always be right. Does that make sense? If in his being he is right, then, then flowing from that, everything he says will be, yeah, somebody's with me, right. Psalm 33, verse 4 and 5. The word of the Lord, here's our word, is upright, is upright, needs no correction or adjustment, can be fully trusted in. Derek mentioned it in Sunday school this morning. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. Because God is right, his word is right. It cannot be in error. We believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God. It does not contain mistakes. It can be banked on, it is trustworthy, it is accurate. You can, I mean, the big joke about the weatherman is, how could a person be paid to be wrong most of the time? We have this huge rain, I don't know if it was predicted or not, but you're tuning in, you, you just don't know if you can trust that. You don't know if you can trust uh, your financial manager. Well, is he going to put the money in the right place? Is he doing, is he doing the right thing? You, People are untrustworthy. It's, this, it's the same thing. God, every dawn, his word is true. Man just continues to speak lies. His word is right. Second, the second kind of tentacle flowing from this. If God is right, his word must be right, and his rules must be right. His rules must be right. Since God created the world and is the owner and master of it, he has the right to set the precepts and rules that govern it. Doesn't that make sense? And these are unchanging. Psalm 19, verse 9. Again, I'm just piling verses on. This is a great way to just jot these references down for later. Psalm 19, 9 says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous. Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, Lord, that your rules are righteous. I mean, this, this would be like a key verse for the lesson today. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. This word rules, as I'm using it, means judgments or decisions. It can also mean plans or instructions. Um, and as I said, they are unchanging. They need no adaptation. When God says, these are my commands or rules, they are fixed and firm. And be very, be very plain with you, it does not matter that the cultures and society wants to kind of grow past those things and say that those kind of uh, social norms are now archaic and are in the past. And those who hold to the Bible as being God's word are just these ignorant idiots who want to impose on us some sort of restriction. And we can get to the point now in society where where we can call men women and women men, and any relationship goes. 
And we could just say, well, we've kind of adapted, and, and now we are, including, uh, we are including a sin. Uh, we are including a sin as almost like a, a race of people, right? Anyone who views sexuality in a perverted way needs to be protected because they are, they are like a class of people. They, they are a group of people that need this type of protection. Like they're a minority of some kind. Can you imagine if we did that for any, any, any other sin, right? Thieves. Oh, we need to protect thieves under the law. It's just nonsense. It is nonsense. And it is an abandonment of the rightness of God. It's like me being the idiot with my flannel shirt like this and saying, you're going to teach school like that? Yeah, no problem. You don't want to change that? I like it this way. And who are you to tell me that this is the right way to do it? I'm kind of making a joke of that. But this is what everyone, and I'm not just saying out there, but we ourselves, we like to recoil against the rules of God. These are unchanging. It doesn't matter how our society grows and adapts. We must not let the culture, whether it's education or entertainment or the government, somehow dictate to us what is right. Because the only thing that is right in this world is God, and that means what flows from him is right. And we can get tied in and locked in to all this flowery talk by our government officials, and hey, it's, it's hateful to tell people that this certain thing is right or wrong. We adjust ourselves to God's standard of rightness or else. That's it. His rules are right. I mean, imagine playing a game with somebody who is constantly changing the rules to fit what they want, to make themselves happy. I, I jotted down Isaiah 58, and I didn't write the verse, but I did want to read it to us, that, that these are the expectations that God has. In other words, God does set these rules, and they are right, and then his expectation is that all of his creatures will align themselves to those rules. And here it is kind of uh, said to us in Isaiah 58. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions. Tell them where they have gone opposite of right. Tell them where they've gone wrong. Where their transgressions, where they've failed to adjust themselves to God's standard. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of righteous judgments and delight to draw near God. See what he's saying about these people? Saying They're acting like they want to know what God wants, but they have rejected his righteous ways. America, anybody? Right? His rules are right. So because he is right, his word is right, his rules are right. Third tentacle coming off of that, his ways are right. His ways are right. We could say this could encompass a lot. His actions, his expectations of us. This is that great Hebrew word, derek. It's the word that is path or way. The way that God demands of us is the right way. Hosea 14, verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand this. Whoever is is discerning, let him know these things. What things? The ways of the Lord are right. And the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. I mean, could it be any more clear to us? God is right, his word is right, his rules are right, his way is right. And the way that God defines an upright person is that he walks in those ways. 
Transgressors reject his ways. God is right, speaks right, his rules and ways are right. And he calls for himself a people who are unrighteous, but provided Christ that he might impute righteousness to us and then demands after that that we practice righteousness. Listen to some of these verses. I promise we're going to get to Samuel in just a second. What does the scripture say about righteousness? Well, first of all, it tells us in Matthew 5, 6 that we are to hunger and thirst for it. We are even expected to be persecuted when we live righteously. Matthew 6.33 says we are to prioritize it above all other things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is our priority, to walk in his right ways, to adjust our lives so that they line up with his right ways. Yet without this righteousness, we cannot enter God's kingdom. And we have no way achieving that righteousness on our own. Some will hear this and think, well, my life doesn't line up with God's. I better work a lot harder, work a lot better. No. God in his goodness has provided Jesus Christ to be the substitute for our sins. To die on the cross. To live a perfect right life. I mean, remember what Jesus says. I I have come to do the will of the Father that sent me. I always do what pleases him. There was never a time in Jesus' life where someone could say to him, that's not right. As far from a sin standpoint, I mean, we could, Jesus did learn, of course, when we, we talk about him being a carpenter, maybe he, I mean, to, to, to make a mistake on a piece of wood is not a sin. He's learning and growing. But to, to do something that is amiss with the character of God, not a chance for the Lord Jesus. He always did what was right so he could die on the cross where we deserve to die, that he might give us, just as a gift, his righteousness. There's two ways that people go about trying to achieve this righteousness. Either they work really hard for it and God ultimately will reject them or they can just ask him for the gift of Christ's righteousness and on that basis he will accept you. God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, always aligned with the rightness of God, that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. That is the blessedness of the gospel. When we exercise that faith in Christ, our soul is brought into union with Jesus. He gives us that righteousness and now expects that that life will inevitably inevitably produce righteousness. So understand the difference. You are given positional righteousness when you trust Jesus Christ. He sees you as righteous. He sees that you have lived up to everything even though you haven't. Because Christ did it in your place. If you've not received that or you're counting on yourself, friend, you're on your way to hell. You're separated from God. I don't care how sincere you are in your belief. You must reject your own righteousness and receive his. So once he gives you that righteousness, that is unchanging. But now he expects your life to align with his righteousness. Does that make sense? Practically now, you're supposed to be doing things, walking in an upright way, that aligns with him as the Spirit enables you. Not for the achievement of salvation, but just as the inevitable outcome of of the union that we have with Christ to conform to his righteous word, rules, and ways. Now, what does all this have to do with 1 and 2 Samuel? In the Old Testament, God called for himself a people, beginning in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, when he says... 
I have chosen you, and I'm going to make a nation from you, and ultimately, all people in the earth will be blessed as a result of your descendants. He's speaking, of course, of Jesus coming from Abraham's line. Many times during that relationship that God had with the nation of Israel, he called them back to the covenant that he made on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses goes up on the mountain and receives the Ten Commandments and returns back and enters into this conditional covenant with Israel saying, if you follow these rules and align your ways with my right ways, I will provide you great blessing. If you don't, there will be punishment. One of those places occurs in Exodus 15, 26. I'll just read this to you. He says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, I will not bring the diseases upon you that I've promised. But the nation of Israel, as we know, consistently rebelled against God. First and foremost, they they rebelled at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 14 when they sent in the spies and they said, we just can't do it. God can't do it. And God says, okay, I won't do it for you. All of you will die in the wilderness and your children will get to go in. And so in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving that law to the second generation of people that are going to go in and take in the land. All their parents, their aunts and uncles, they have all died because of their disbelief and rebellion. The children will go in. Moses encourages them over and over in Deuteronomy to say, hey, do what is right. Do what is right. Line your ways with the rightness of God. Encourages them. We'll look at a couple places in just a minute. They went in and conquered the land, and Joshua taking the leadership there, uh, they, they conquer Canaan, and at the end of Joshua, chapter 24, Joshua is dying, and he says, hey, choose you this day whom you will serve. Forsake the nations uh, and their gods and serve God only. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua dies, and in Judges, chapter 2, the nation immediately falls into rebellion. Judges is a disgusting, discouraging look at what happens when the people of God rebel against his right ways. Last fall, we did the um, overview of the Bible, and when we came to the book of Judges, we showed you the picture of the judge on a motorcycle to explain that the key thought of Judges was this idea of a cycle, just a kind of a, a, what we call a vicious cycle, where for a period of 400 years, think about this, longer than our nation. It was 400 years ago the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, so longer really than our nation has been in existence. The period of Judges covers 400 years of this constant rebellion. And here's how one uh, person says we can remember it. So the people rebel against God, then God provides retribution or punishment, and it was usually in the form of another group of nations coming in and, and enslaving them. Then they would repent and cry out to God for forgiveness, and God would restore them. Then they would rebel. Then God would provide retribution. Then they would repent. Then God would restore them. This happened seven times over the period of 400 years. They just just kept on doing this. God would raise up a judge, a man or a woman, to deliver them and rescue them from oppression, only to see these people relapse into rebellion. And at some point during this moral and spiritual and even political chaos, the people said, what we need is a king. 
Because that person will come in and help us and maybe keep us from this, and we won't have to depend on God. Understand this. God wanted to be their king. He didn't want to have a man ruling over them. He wanted to lead them in what is known as a theocracy, God as the king. And the people's requesting of a king is a rejection of that. They even basically confess that here in 1 Samuel chapter 12. We've done all kinds of sins, they tell Samuel, and the worst thing we did was we asked for a king. We should have trusted God to be our leader. It is a rejection of God and his rulership over them, which is what mankind has constantly done, Romans chapter 1. They did not want the rulership of God over them, and they exchanged his worship for their own worship. And God punishes us. This chaos can be summarized and explained in one phrase. Turn to the book of Judges, the last verse. In our Old Testament, we go Joshua, it goes Joshua, Judges, then Ruth. But in actuality, the time frame, the last verse of Judges leads us right into the book of 1 Samuel. Ruth is another story, a beautiful story, that occurs during the time of the Judges. But Judges chapter 24, or 21, rather, verse 25, is the explanation of this moral and spiritual chaos. Everybody there? Judges chapter 21, 25. Let's all read it out loud together. I don't care what version you got. It's going to be generally the same. Read it out loud with me. Here we go. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. <laughs> in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8 to 14, Moses actually encouraged them not to do what is right in their own eyes. And here they are doing it. Judges chapter 17 records a very similar book, uh, verse. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Here's what the people of Israel did. They replaced the one right standard, God, his word, his ways, his rules, for a thousand or more right ways as they saw it. We're just going to do what's right in our eyes, not what is right in God's. This morning, for our scripture reading, I read from Proverbs 3, verse 7, which says... Be not wise in your own eyes. <laughs> they exchanged God's rightness for a plurality of right ways. Hey, if it, if it feels right to me, then it must be right. Uh, there is no standard here except the, our own individual standards. Is there, is there any reason, I mean, it, this, is, this is specifically why there is this moral and spiritual chaos during the time of the judges in Samuel. And honestly, it's why there's moral and spiritual chaos in our society today. Because everyone has a right standard. Their own. If I ever hear this phrase again, oh, you got to speak your truth. I'm going to strangle myself. There is no your truth or my truth. There is the truth. There, there is no, hey, it's just, if, I'm, I don't want to step on your rights, whatever you think is right. Judges 21-25 is really the epitaph 
for America. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Our culture, just like the nation of Israel, has redefined truth, has rejected God, and replaced his rightness with all of our own. Whatever we think is right. It's like we're buttoning our flannel shirt the wrong way, and no one can correct that. We're taking what has been normal for thousands of years, and now making it just this abnormal perversion that must be accepted because it must be right. It feels right. <laughs> There's moral and spiritual chaos right now and darkness, but I promise you, it will ultimately bring God's judgment. And there should be no, there should be no misunderstanding that the, the job of the preacher and the job really of every Christian, we're going to talk about this tonight, is to preach the word of God and to proclaim God's righteous standard and to instruct us and to instruct myself too when I'm failing to meet that standard and come along and provide that correction. we got to understand, as Christians, we should receive that correction gladly so that our life does align up with God's rightness, but we also must understand that the culture is increasingly rejecting that and saying, just get away, and it's going to come sooner rather than later that we'll actually be persecuted for righteousness' sake. What does an unbelieving nation do when there is moral chaos? They do exactly what the people in Israel did. They search for a leader to guide them and to bring them out of it. This person will save us. That's why they demand a king. They looked at all the other nations and said, Samuel, give us a king. We'll get to that. But in the world where everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes, what level of discernment do we have to look for a person that will lead us in righteousness? We only want a person who's going to affirm us and approve us in whatever that we're doing. We certainly don't want to have it announced that the only leader, the only solution to this wrongness of our culture is the person of Jesus Christ. No one wants to hear that information. But that is the solution, and that is ultimately what God is doing in the nation of Israel. He's fulfilling a promise to Abraham, and he's going to make that renewed promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, and say, I'm going to bring that Messiah, and he is going to rule over, and he is going to provide the righteousness that my people lack. And that is our ultimate hope. No person, no leader, but Christ. And this is what we're going to learn from First and 2 Samuel. People will fail. Saul's going to fail miserably, right? You, you know some of those stories, and we're going to have fun walking through them. David, even the man after God's own heart, will fail. And even when we fail, when the unjust Zephaniah says, no, no shame, God remains righteous. He is good, and he does good. He is right, and he does right. What does the Bible say to those who do what is right in their own eyes? What if you say to me, Andy, that's stupid. That's hogwash. I mean, some, I'll, I'll do what some of this says as long as it makes my life easier and better. But, but there are going to be certain decisions I make that I'm just going to make because I think it's right. Well, here's what the Bible says about those who walk as right in their own eyes. Let me just share this. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Isaiah 5, 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, 
and shrewd in their own sight. <laughs> I don't know how, it can't be more specific than this. Romans 12, 7, 6, 12, verse 16. Never be wise in your own sight. This is a solemn verse. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is the way of death. This is not a moral battle that we face in American culture where we just want to kind of get our way and push our standards and push our rightness. This is an eternal battle for the souls of men and women who are doing things as right in their own eyes and will ultimately come to the realization that being right in your own eyes leads only to death. Again, a reminder from Proverbs 3.7, do not be wise in your own eyes. So how do we not do that? We fear the Lord and we turn from evil. I hope that you will acknowledge this morning that God is right. Do you acknowledge that? God is right and does right. While the world rejects his way, will you determine to align your life with his rightness and seek his righteousness first? Will you turn from your sin that God might pardon you and rejoice in the righteousness that he has provided through Christ? Will you, in all your ways, acknowledge him so he can make your paths straight? It's going to be an encouraging study in 1 Samuel. Ultimately, as we see the Savior Jesus Christ coming from the line of David, we rejoice in all that he's provided for us. Let's bow our heads.